Uh, our text for today comes from Luke 24, 13 through 35. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the one visiting Jerusalem who does not know about the things that have happened here, there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels, who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them, assembled together, saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened along the way and how Jesus re was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. How's everybody doing? Good? All right. So we have, a, surprisingly enough, we have a little bit of ground to cover today. Uh, Ashley did a good job of reading that passage, and it's a long one, but it's also a really good one. So here's what I want you to do. If you have a Bible with you, I'd like you to open to the very last chapter of Luke's Gospel, Luke 24, and just keep your thumb there, because it might be helpful for you to reference back. We will have stuff on this, uh, passages on the screen, but it's also helpful to, like, kind of look at your own Bible and get some context. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's most certainly one in the seat back in front of you that you can grab and look there as well. So we, today, what I really want to do is just walk through this passage with you. I don't often get the opportunity of just walking through a passage in a way that, uh, helps us to understand the whole of the thing, and that, so that's what I want to do today. These are the types of messages that are very fun for me, I have no idea if it's fun for you, so you can let me know afterwards. How's that sound? This is exactly what every pastor wants, people to say, that was great, right? That's what I want. Great. So uh, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Luke chapter 24. Now, as, we, as you may or may not know, the last chapter in Luke's gospel is chapter 24. In Luke chapter 23, Jesus is crucified, died, and buried. And in Luke chapter 24, we have 
uh, all that Luke has to say about the resurrection of Jesus. Everything that Luke has to say about the resurrected Jesus is found in Luke chapter 24. All of his post-resurrection appearances in Luke's gospel find themselves in this passage, at the, at, in this chapter. In the very beginning of Luke chapter 24, in verses 1 through 12, we have the women going to the empty tomb. And, and then after that, we have this passage here, the Emmaus Road passage, which is the longest in the central passage in the chapter. It, it serves a kind of pivotal role in Luke's last chapter. And finally, after Jesus appears to these disciples on the Emmaus Road, he then goes and he appears to all the other disciples, the 12 apostles, or 11 apostles at this point, uh, to really announce his resurrection to them. And so what we have to keep in mind when we read this passage is that this is all that Luke says, at least until the book of Acts. If you're not aware, uh, Luke wrote both Luke, his gospel, Luke, and the book of Acts as kind of a two-part story. But all that Luke has to say in, the book, in his gospel about the resurrection of Jesus is said in this one chapter, in this one chapter. And so this one chapter of the first volume of Luke's gospel is really, really important. It's important because Luke kind of sums up everything he has to say about the resurrected Jesus in this passage. Luke undoubtedly had a lot of stories about the resurrected Jesus he could have told, but he, he chose to tell these stories. And specifically, he chose to tell this very unique story about this, these two people walking on the road to Emmaus. He chose to make that the central story in his narrative about the resurrected Jesus. And so it's important that we ask to look deeply at this and ask why. Why is Luke making this narrative so central? Why is it so important? The story of the Emmaus Road is one of the most famous stories in our Bibles. It's probably second only—now, this was a real story. This is something that really happened. But in terms of stories that are reported from the Scriptures, it's probably the second most reported. The first being the story of the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus tells. But that story and this story are probably the two most prominent stories in our New Testament. You'll see more paintings and more—if uh, you go to— uh, an art, a famous art gallery in Europe about the Emmaus Road and about the prodigal son than probably any other two stories that, that exist. This story captures people's imagination and has captured Christians' imaginations for thousands of years. There's something powerful and potent about this story, so much so that to just read it feels like enough, and it's long enough that also that could feel like enough. But there's some beautiful things and some detailed things that Luke is doing in this gospel that, that I think we see and we hear the resonance of, but when they're brought to the surface, really shed some light on what Luke is trying to communicate about this resurrected Jesus and what the significance of it all means. And so this morning, like I said, I just kind of want to walk through this, gos uh, this gospel story with you. But specifically, I want to talk through the two metaphors that Luke uses to describe what, what an encounter with the resurrected Jesus looks like in this passage. And those two metaphors are burning hearts and open eyes. Not burning eyes. That's what happens this time of year if you're like me and you have allergies, uh, like all last week. Uh, but burning hearts and opened eyes. So that's the two metaphors we're going to kind of work through and center our talk on. But first, I want to actually orient us in this passage, all right? 
All right. Yeah, there you go. That's good. So uh, picking up in Luke chapter 24, verse 13, this is what it says. Now the same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. This is about a three-hour walk, if you were to do it. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But notice this, they were kept from recognizing him. They were kept from seeing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. They were discouraged. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? It's an interesting question. So these two disciples are leaving Jerusalem after Jesus has been crucified. They're leaving Jerusalem. They're walking away. We don't, it, currently, we don't know where the, the ancient city of Emmaus was. We're told in this narrative that it was roughly seven miles away, and we can tell. Uh, archaeologists have some idea of where it might have been, but we don't know exactly. All we know is that these two disciples, who at, uh, at first are not named, but one of them is named later, are walking away from Jerusalem. And we are told that these are two of Jesus' disciples, not two of the apostles. Rather, there was, there was kind of, if you think of Jesus' followers in kind of concentric circles, there were, there were the ones who were closest to him, like the, the apostles. And then there, were, there was a larger group outside of the apostles that also followed Jesus and called themselves his disciples. These two people were definitely friends and followers of Jesus. Jesus knew them, and they knew him. The text is attempting to communicate that reality to us, that in their normal life with Jesus, post, uh, before, pre-crucifixion, they would have known him, and he would have known them. So that's an important bit of information. And Luke tells us that they are walking away from the city of Jerusalem. They are leaving the city of Jesus' crucifixion. Now remember, all of Jesus' followers came with him into the city of Jerusalem, thinking that he was going to be crowned king in that place. But the crucifixion happened, and that changed a lot of things for a lot of his followers. You know, these two disciples had hoped that Jesus was the Messiah. They hoped that he was the deliverer. And now they were just kind of lost and disoriented, and fearful. And they are walking away from the place that they thought was going to be the place of their salvation and deliverance. And now they just don't know where to go. And this is exactly what happens to us sometimes, isn't it? Have you ever had a loss in your life? Have you ever had an expectation that fell to the ground? Have you ever uh, experienced a broken relationship have you ever lost a job? Have you ever lost a loved one in your life? And you lose your vision. You lose any concept of what the future holds for you. You're just kind of walking around, right? You're going in no particular direction. You are just lost a little bit. We're not told why these disciples are going to Emmaus. We're not told what significance Emmaus has for them. It seems that they might have had a place to live there, so maybe it was their hometown. Maybe they were just going back to the most familiar place in their lives, having lost a kind of hope and direction. But this is, a, this is a, a kind of parable for what happens to us so often, doesn't it? 
I've lost a job a couple times in my life, and I've, when, and whenever that happens, you just go, the, the common refrain that you have is, what do you do now? What do I do now, right? What do I do now? I had this vision. I had this purpose. I had this direction. And when the, f- when the, when the gates of the future kind of clamp down on you, you don't know where to go, and you don't know what to do. So you very often just go back to the thing you know, which in the case of these disciples is home, is home. And as they're walking along the road, the scriptures tell us that they are talking about the crucifixion, that they are talking about all that has happened in this passage. And when we read that they are talking about what what has happened back in Jerusalem, the crucifixion of their leader, the death of all their hopes and dreams is what they're actually talking about. The word that we get in our, in, our, in our translation of this passage is discussing, but the word in Greek is a little different. It means to strongly debate. They are actually having it out a little bit on the road as they walk back to Emmaus. And as they are, probably in a slightly louder than normal conversation between themselves about what had taken place in Jerusalem, someone approaches them. That the the scriptures tell us right away is Jesus, is the risen Lord. But these two disciples of Jesus on the path back to wherever they're going can't recognize him. They can't see him for who he is. And he strikes up a conversation. And Cleopas, the only one of the two disciples who's actually named clearly in this letter, and we have other examples, he's named other places in in the New Testament as a disciple of Jesus. But Cleopas is obviously a little discouraged. And like most of us, when we get a little discouraged or exasperated, um, he gets a little snarky with Jesus here, doesn't he? And Jesus asks them what they're talking about, and Cleopas responds, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? If you want me to translate that, it just means, are you kidding me, man? Are you, do you have any idea? He's a little ticked, right? He's a little frustrated. He's a little exasperated. And Jesus responds, what things? Yeah, I'm exactly as dim as you think I am. What things? Can you please tell me, right? And picking up in verse 19, this is what the passage says. Jesus says, what things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, how he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But, and this is a key passage, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since this took place. And this is where they get really confused. And in addition, some of our women amazed us, which I I always think is a funny line. Uh, They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found that it it was as the women said, but they did not see Jesus. So Cleopas and his companion are disoriented, to say the least. And they tell the whole story of Jesus there, don't they? In just a couple of sentences, they tell the whole story of Jesus' life, what they thought he was going to do for them, and now why they were so discouraged and disoriented. 
And we get the story of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection just right there in that passage, don't we? But yet it seems that Cleopas and his, uh, his companion are unable to see, unable to believe, don't quite get what all of this means. They don't understand what the women reported to them. They don't understand what the disciples saw. They don't understand the significance of really any of it, which is why they were talking about it in the way that they were. And then, because of that, Jesus gets into it a little bit with his disciples, doesn't he? And he says to them, in a way that feels like a rebuke to us, but is more of a rabbinic way of speaking, he rebukes them for not seeing what they should have seen, for not experiencing uh, Jesus as fulfilling the scriptures. And then he goes on to talk to them about the significance of what they had just experienced. Though they don't see him yet, they, don't, they still don't know him. They still don't understand him. They, they, they can't see the significance of who Jesus is or what he has done. And yet, and yet, he's there with them. He's communicating to them. He's telling them everything they need to know. And the scriptures report later on in this passage that what Jesus is, what the, what the disciples are actually experiencing in this moment makes their hearts burn. Makes their hearts burn. Now, it's not giving them heart burn. This is important. All you need for that is Tums or ice cream or I don't know, whatever your, whatever your drug of choice is. But it makes their hearts burn. Something inside them is stirred by what Jesus is saying. And for just a moment, I want to delve into the significance of what that means, that it makes their hearts burn. You see, this passage tells us that what Jesus is doing when he is communicating to them, to them about the significance of this Messiah is that he's talking to them from the Old Testament about what it all means about what it all means. And it says, Moses and the prophets, and he tells them all about how Moses and the prophets were going to talk about him, how they, how they pointed to him, how they, how they told them about this reality. And what we can read there is that maybe in, in our 21st century minds, what we can often read there is that Jesus sits down and says, here are the 15 passages that communicate that I was, uh, that I am who, well, he doesn't say I, right? That Jesus, that the Messiah was the one who would come and d die to deliver Israel and da 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 That's what we think. Here are the individual passages. But if you read that, what Jesus says is Moses and the prophets. Now, the first five books of the Bible are, in, are called the Torah, but are often referred to as the books of Moses. And a shorthand way of talking about the entirety of the Old Testament, you will occasionally read this in the New Testament. They'll call the, they'll call the Old Testament uh, the Law and the Prophets, or Moses' book and the Prophets. So when Jesus says, when, when Luke tells us that Jesus tells them about how Moses and the Prophets all are about him, what Luke is actually trying to communicate to us is that all of it, everything, the entire story of God's interaction with humanity— from, from the very beginning to this point, all points to, all finds its apex in the person of Jesus. All finds its significance in this Messiah. 
the reason Jesus rebukes them is not necessarily because he is mad. He definitely wants them to come and understand a little bit, but he wants them to see something significant about what the scriptures are all about. You see, this idea of a burning heart carries with it the idea that Jesus, that the Messiah, is the central figure in the scriptures. That to, that, that to read the scriptures is to see the person of Jesus. To understand what the scriptures say is to understand who Jesus is. To really and truly understand who the person of Jesus is. And this is important. This is important. Because Jesus is articulating himself as the kind of interpretive key to all of the Bible. And early Christians did this. The first Christians did this in ways that feel kind of strange to us, actually. They saw Jesus everywhere. I think we have a, a quote from Augustine, that if, if you can throw that quote up. Augustine lived in the fourth century, and he says this, The scriptures are, in fact, in any passage you care to choose, singing of Christ, provided we have ears that are capable of picking out the tune. The Lord opens the minds of the apostles so that they understand the scriptures. Uh, and we pray that he will open our minds too. Well, that he will open our minds too in our prayer, is our prayer. So the ear early Christians saw this and they understood this. And when you go back and you read early Christians, particularly early, early pastors like Augustine or other people like that, they see Jesus everywhere in the Old Testament, everywhere. And Jesus becomes the type of a, a kind of interpretive key for us for understanding the text. Jesus is the lens through which Christians have always read the scriptures. Now, why is this important? Why is this important? Because we need an interpretive key, a lens that we read the scriptures through. Because if we don't read the scriptures through the lens of Jesus, we will inevitably, inevitably read them through a different lens. We will, lead, we will read them through the lens of our own experience. We will read them through the lens of uh, uh, cultural assumptions. We will read them through whatever type of lens we want to read them through. And very often this happens in history. This is part of how uh, people have used the scriptures for all kinds of horrible things. You know, people have used the scriptures at times to argue for the validity of things like slavery, right? People have used, uh, used the scriptures to, to validate all kinds of horrible treatment of people throughout time. People have used the scriptures to, uh, in ways that go completely counter to the person, character, and work of Christ. And the way that they get to that place is that they don't actually read the scriptures through the lens of Jesus. When you understand the whole story of God's interaction with humanity as finding its its apex, its peak in the person of Christ, and you read the scriptures through that lens, then you begin to be able to read the scriptures clearly as they were intended to be read. And what these disciples on the road with Jesus discover is that there is a kind of energy to reading the scriptures this way. That as this person who they don't know is on the road with them, telling them about himself, really, and all of the ways in which the, the scriptures talk about him, their hearts are set alight by it. Their lives are 
their, their minds, their emotions, their life are caught up with this energy as well. And their hearts burn. Their hearts burn. You know, the, the God of the Hebrew Bible is most fully realized in the resurrected Jesus. The God of the Hebrew Bible is most fully realized in the resurrected Jesus. This is the way uh, the scholar N.T. Wright says it. He says of this passage, he says, And they are to make this fresh reading of Scripture the source of their inner life of burning zeal and their framework for understanding who Jesus was and is, who they are in relation to him and what they must do as a result. This fresh reading of Scripture, this reading of Scripture through the lens of the person of Jesus is the thing that gives this new movement of Christians as we go forward into the book of Acts their purpose, their direction, their vision for life. But let's keep going. We pick up in verse 28. In verse 28, we read this. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continues on as if he were going further. Jesus is playing a little game here. <laughs> but they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight right then and there. Wouldn't that be fun to be able to do? So they get to their village. They get to Emmaus. They get to the place that they were going to stay, and it's getting dark, and Jesus decides he's going to leave, I guess. I don't know exactly what he was playing at there, but they invite him to stay, right? They, were, they extended Jesus a kind of customary hospitality, and then they sit down to break bread with him. And there are like 10 different things happening here. There are so many echoes of scripture that are occurring in this passage that is hard to actually get them all in in a single message. But I just want to draw out two echoes or stories from the scripture that it seems that Luke is trying to draw our attention towards here. And the first echo that we read is the Garden of Eden. We read an echo of the Garden of Eden. Now we know from the scriptures that Cleopas had a wife. She was one of the Marys, if you read uh, some of the crucifixion accounts. His wife was named Mary. And though, uh, and they were both disciples of Jesus, close followers of Jesus, people who Jesus was friends with. And many assume that the person that Cle uh, Cleopas is walking to Emmaus with is his wife, that they are a husband and wife. And while they are eating with Jesus, their eyes are opened. Their eyes are opened. And any good Jewish person reading this passage of Cleopas and his companion or somebody who is possibly his wife Mary will inevitably understand the significance. And Luke does this intentionally because he mirrors some of the language of the Genesis story. Luke may be comparing the opening of Cleopas and his wife's eyes with the opening of the eyes of Adam and Eve in the Genesis narrative. In the same way that eating had Adam and Eve's eyes open to the knowledge of good and evil and allowed sin and death to enter the story, this meal that these two are eating with Jesus represents the start of God's new creation, his new plan moving forward in history. The curse that was begun by eating in disobedience by Adam and Eve is now in, in some is symbolic way is undone as this new couple eat bread with the person of Christ. Do you see the symbolism there? It's kind of beautiful, isn't it? 
And God's plan, as we said last week, is kind of shifted into overdrive. And in Jesus, sin and death that came into the world through Adam and Eve has now been defeated through Jesus' cross and his resurrection. And these two, this possibly husband and wife, eating with this Jesus, come to see with new eyes the reality of God's world and his plan breaking into their world. A kind of new creation has begun right in their very midst. And through relationship with Jesus, these new believers whose hearts have been set alight by the scriptures and whose eyes have been opened by God's plan of redemption now get the privilege of partnering with him in this plan as they go forward. But it is through this close personal encounter with Jesus that their eyes are opened. It is through a close personal encounter with Jesus that their eyes are opened at the table. In the first century world, the table was the most intimate setting one could be in with with another person. You did not allow anybody to sit at your table and eat with you that you did not approve of. This is why it's so scandalous in the, earlier in the Gospels when Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. Why everybody's scandalized by that reality. So, because to sit with someone and to eat with them in the first century world was tantamount to saying publicly that I approve of this person. It was this incredibly intimate setting and gathering. But there's another image or echo that we see in this passage as well. And you probably... Uh, pick up on it when you read verse 30. Verse 30 says this, when, when he was at table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he began to give it to him. And it was at, at that moment that the lights turned on for them, and they saw who Jesus actually was. You see, it was not until these disciples stepped into close proximity to Jesus. It was not until they got close to him, in relationship to him, in one of the most in, intimate settings in the first century world, that they were able to see him for who he was. The scriptures confirmed that reality to them when they, when they think back about it later, but it was this close proximity. It was breaking bread with him. It was eating with him that brought to their eyes the reality of who he was. The scholar Daryl Bach says it this way, the table was the place of fellowship in the ancient world. Here, families and friends gather to share time with each other. Luke has underscored the importance of meal scenes throughout, the, throughout his gospel. The table was the place where Jesus was heard and where his presence came across most intimately. This fact suggests that Jesus reveals himself in the midst of the most basic moments of life. He is at home in the midst of everyday activity. And the message of Easter, if it is anything, is that in the person of Jesus, God has drawn near to humanity and made a way for us to step into intimate relationship with him. If the band could come up. You know, this is not the last time that Jesus will eat a meal with somebody in this gospel, in Luke's gospel. Jesus, after he leaves Cleopas and his companion, he goes immediately to the 12 disciples and he sits with them and he eats with them as a sign of his resurrection. He communicates his closeness to them and his relationship to them by eating with them. If you think back in one of the most beautiful examples of this, in John's Gospel, in chapter 21 of John's Gospel, when 
when Jesus wants to restore Peter, Peter had denied Jesus before he was crucified. Rather than standing in solidarity with Jesus, he ran from the reality, fearful for his life. He ran from the person of Jesus, and he denied that he was ever even a disciple of Jesus publicly. And when Jesus wants to restore him back into relationship, when he wants to restore him back into ministry, what does he do? He sits on the beach, builds a little fire, and he cooks him some fish. He eats a meal with him. This is how Jesus communicates the reality of his presence to his people, through a meal, through a meal, which is funny, right? But it's a simple metaphor. And, and I think it's an intentional one. Because the truth of who Jesus is is communicated to us through close relationship. Because the meal is a picture of close relationship. And when Jesus wanted to give his disciples, before he was crucified, this picture of what it looks like to be in close relationship, a practice to remind them of what it looks like to be in close relationship with him, what did he do? He gave them another meal. He gave them the practice of communion, this this way of remembering, of reminding themselves, this way of connecting back into one another and to the reality of the closeness of God. And so this morning, we're going to receive communion together. If those helping with the serving of communion could come up, that'd be great. And we want to just come to the table today as a reminder to ourselves of Jesus' closeness the closeness of who he is and how close he wants to be to us. Jesus wants to be intimately near you this morning. And he gives us this, uh, this practice of communion as a way of helping us to remember that reality, to step into that reality with all that we are. So this morning, as we come to the table, let's not come out of religious compulsion but let's come to the table understanding that Jesus' resurrection that means that God longs to be with his people. God longs to be with his people. And that he longs to be near you. Intimately. And today in this place, he wants to meet with you this morning. Even if you're confused, even if you're lost, even if you're wandering a road back to your hometown, it doesn't, we don't know, right? Jesus wants to be near you, and he is available for you this morning. Maybe we just need to have our eyes open to the reality of his presence with us. Maybe we just need that. So if you're with us this morning, uh, we just like to say that we practice an open communion at Grace Community, which just means that uh, you don't need to be a member of our church to receive with us. All we ask is that you follow Jesus with your life. You place your trust in him. So as we come to the table this morning, these are the uh, Paul's words to the Corinthians uh, about the, the table of communion. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup and the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So, Father, this morning, uh, we come to you. We confess, God, that we are more like 
the two disciples on the road to Emmaus than we like to admit. That we are lost, that we are confused, that we don't know which way is up, that we are often unaware of even when, you're, when you come to us, when you want to be near us. We just don't often see it. But this morning we ask that as we come to the table of communion, God, that you would help us to see you for who you really are. That your real presence would be here with us today. And that as we uh, receive together, uh, that your life would fill our hearts. That, it, that your scriptures would burn in our hearts and that our eyes would be open to the reality of who you are. We pray it all now in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen and amen. Our, uh, our friends are here to serve you communion this morning, so you can come up and receive. Uh, and uh, just take an opportunity. Uh, you can take an opportunity both to uh, reflect on the goodness and grace and nearness of Jesus. The table is open. Thank you.